Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are starting to wrap up our series on the genealogies of Scripture. And here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will discuss the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. As always, please take a look at those links in the show notes. We have the articles that we've posted on our website so far this week, as well as links to our YouTube channel where we put out weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. And here is Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Luke chapter 3. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James B. John and Jeff Myers. Uh, Brian Motes is here in the background helping uh, to make sure that we're having, uh, we're uh, getting the podcast recorded. Uh, this is a, uh, a particular trick uh, today because we are recording in the midst of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, and uh, that means that the internet is overloaded and uh, we are... Uh, in danger of losing contact with each other. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to uh, get through the podcast and make it available to everyone. Please do be in prayer for for Theopolis and for those of us who are participating in the podcast. Uh, Alistair Roberts is at home in Stoke-on-Trent, England, and taking care of his parents, taking care of uh, many in his local congregation, helping them set up so that they can stay in contact with each other over Zoom and other platforms. He's been very busy, so uh, keep Alice in your prayers. Jeff and James have been sick recently. They haven't been tested for the coronavirus, but they have symptoms that match some of the coronavirus symptoms. Not life-threatening in any in any way, but uh, they've been ill, so please pray for Jeff and James. Uh, and uh, as I say, do, do pray for Theopolis. Uh, we would be able to continue. Much of our work takes place virtually, so we've been, we'll be able to continue the the podcasts and the videos that we produce and the and the articles and so on. We've already had to c- cancel some of our live events and we're hoping to be able to reschedule those later in the year. And those are really the, and for us, the heart of our work because the uh, combination, the, the integration of worship and study is uh, really at the heart of what we're about. So we're looking forward to being able to return to those courses uh, when it's all clear to do so. Uh, we are closing in on the end of our series on the Bible's genealogies. That's been our topic of study for the last number of weeks. Last time we looked at, the last time we were together, we looked at the genealogy of Matthew in Matthew chapter 1, uh, where uh, Matthew is introducing his gospel with a, with a patterned genealogy that traces Jesus' descent from Abraham and David in particular. And this week we're looking at the other genealogy of Jesus that's found in the Gospels. Uh, which is the genealogy uh, Luke records in uh, Luke chapter 3. That's in a different kind of setting from the genealogy that's recorded in Matthew. Matthew introduces his gospel with the genealogy, uh, and we talked about how that fits into the overall pattern of Matthew's gospel with Matthew telling, retelling the story of Israel, starting with a kind of Genesis, uh, Genesis form with the genealogy, and mo- then moving through the book of uh, Exodus up to Sinai, and then moving on uh, as uh, as we said through the through the rest of the Old Testament, uh, Luke is doing something different with his gospel, and he places the genealogy differently. Instead of it placing it at the beginning of the book, we have a genealogy that's placed in connection with Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter three. We've already had two chapters of 
infancy narratives, as we, we, we discussed that in a previous, those passages in a previous podcast series, those are, those are in the background. Uh, John's ministry is introduced at the beginning of chapter three, and then Jesus comes to be baptized by John uh, in Luke chapter three, verses 21 and 22. And then from that, we have a genealogy uh, that goes uh, from Jesus and uh, like some of the some of the Old Testament genealogies, but uh, it's a rare thing for the uh, Old Testament genealogies to move backwards from a character in the present through his ancestry back to the beginning of his line. But that's what happens with with Luke's genealogy. So we have a number of things that we can discuss here. At least uh, as an opening thing, we can discuss um, how uh, Luke is fitting Jesus' baptism into his narrative of the gospel. Why is Luke putting the genealogy in connection with the baptism of Jesus rather than giving it at the beginning of his gospel as Matthew does. And why does why do we have the particular genealogy we do? Not only do we have a different set of names than we have in the genealogy that's found in Matthew, but we have a genealogy that goes back past Abraham all the way to Adam, who was the son of God, according to Luke 3.38. So it's a very different kind of genealogy than we found in Matthew, and there's a lot to discuss about how this fits into Luke's intentions for his telling of the story of Jesus. So maybe we should answer this question first is why are the lists so, so uh, radically different Um, in five names in common. That's all Jesus, Joseph, Mathat, Zerubbabel, and Sheatiel. And, you know, so how do we reconcile this with uh, Matthew's genealogy? And there's this popular solution uh, that uh, Luke gives the genealogy of Mary, which doesn't seem to work. I have in my notes here from long ago, uh, I. Howard Marshall suggesting that Matthew gives the legal line of descent from David uh, through Joseph, his um, legal father. Uh, well, no, yeah, Matthew gives the legal line of descent from David, and Luke gives the actual ancestors of Joseph's branch of the family. Um, does that work? Just to clarify your original comment, Jeff, you're not saying there are only five in common in the whole genealogy, because uh, we also have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. You're talking about back to David, the genealogy from David. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Between Haley and Nathan, that's what I meant. It's yeah, the okay. David stuff, right? Right. But that's just an example of how different things are. Right. Right. And so, the, and your question is whether it works to say one is a natural genealogy and the other is a legal genealogy. Legal genealogy, right. Well, what do you mean exactly by a legal genealogy, Jeff? Well, I don't have I. Howard Marshall here, but I remember thinking that that was one of the better solutions to the problem. We could maybe think about a legal genealogy as akin to the line of monarchs in a country where the actual line of monarchs is related to a genealogical structure, but it doesn't necessarily follow that. There are names missed. There are um, kinks in the order and things like that. So if you were going to trace the lineage of the kings and queens of England, you would end up with a rather strange list compared to the actual genealogy of the people who are on the throne. Right, so you have you have people coming from different uh, dynasties, royal houses that enter into the list that would be part of the the king list, but not part of the the, the natural genealogy. William of Orange, for example. So, uh, James, maybe you could illuminate uh, 
different forms of genealogy as you understand them existing in the ancient world. Does that kind of does that kind of distinction make sense? A distinction between like a king list as opposed to an actual father son genealogy is that is that evident in other genealogies from the ancient world? I'm I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I know that we've seen it in past episodes actually that genealogies are, are a messy <laughs> business. We've seen people who have uh, there was that fellow Sheshan in Judah's line who continued his line by giving his uh, daughter in in marriage to one of his servants for instance and where that kind of thing happens it's very plausible that you could trace back a, a genealogy in two different ways in a biological way and in a different way and there are other messy things which could result in that um a leveret m- marriage for instance could result in two different genealogies potentially um as as could an adoption. I mean, my, I think I mentioned when we did Matthew's genealogy that my view was that Shealtiel had been adopted, and there's some Old Testament evidence for that to do with the sidestepping of Jeremiah's curse on Jehoiachin, and that's something that could give two different lines. Perhaps something to think about there is just that in Jesus's own life and appearance in the gospels there does seem to be this slightly unusual tension um it doesn't seem that jesus is obviously a messianic candidate from the line of of david um in john for instance he it doesn't seem that people realize he comes from bethlehem um and has that connection uh in matthew he's described as the son of a carpenter as if to suggest that joseph doesn't have a particularly well-known royal status and so there is this tension and this tension of expectation around where the messiah will come from generally that seems um present in the gospel narratives and and which almost presupposes this slight messiness and obscurity obscurity of genealogy in matthew and luke it might be worth asking at this point, how the framing of the genealogy, the, the difference between the way it's framed in Matthew and Luke might give us some sort of insight into the question of the differences between them. Because Matthew starts with it, and it seems to be attached very much with Jesus' birth, whereas for Luke, it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And that maybe leads to different concerns for the genealogy. One genealogy is serving one purpose, and the other might be serving a different sort of purpose, which will lead to emphasizing certain aspects in one and different aspects in another. I've also read accounts uh, trying to reconcile, harmonize these two genealogies, saying that Matthew's uh, genealogy is highly stylized and structured, and Luke's is not. But that's not accurate. Um, And maybe also in line with what Alistair just said, is that looking at the structure might help us understand uh, his purpose in in uh, writing it like this. There, there are eleven lists of seven names, so there are seventy-seven names uh, in this list, from Jesus to Adam, and 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 God is the seventy-eighth name. Um, and there's been some interesting speculation on why that is, why 11, 
um, and not 12 Y77. But uh, there's there, there's got to be something there uh, uh, to help us as a clue to understand the meaning of this list. Yeah, I'm putting in mind of the uh, discussion we had earlier in an earlier ep- um, series of episodes, a series of podcasts about the infancy narratives. And we were looking at Anna in uh, Luke chapter two. Her age is given as 84, which is a 12 times seven. And we commented on the, the obvious link with Israel and the, the sevenfold of creation. And uh, the, the genealogy gives us one uh, seven fewer. We have 11 sevens instead of 12 sevens, or we have 11 sevens at the beginning of the 12th seven, uh, which suggests a kind of, you have an unfinished, an unfinished line that's going to be completed by this last set of generations that come from Jesus. So there, there may be plays connecting those two numbers together. Picking up on that, Peter, I, I think probably there are different intensifications of seven going on here. So the 84 years is a kind of fullness of sevens or a fullness of sabbatical weeks, if you like. At the start of chapter three, there is this sevenfold power structure. There is Caesar and then Pilate and Herod and two other tetrarchs and the two high priests. So that whole narrative comes against the backdrop of seven rulers. And then, as Jeff said, there is this 77 strong genealogy. And those intensifications of seven, I guess, bring to mind just a a, a kind of jubilee-esque notion, which seems to fit the context well. Um, In chapter two, there is this sending back of everyone to their hometown in a kind of jubilee reset. Um, Then we have the genealogy. Then in chapter four, um, Jesus is in his hometown in Nazareth, and he he makes that jubilee proclamation, which he does on a um, Sabbath day about the year of the Lord's favor and and so forth. So it seems there's a, a jubilee of sorts. If there's a, a difference um, between this one and the normal sevenfold um, jubilee, I, I would suggest that it's it's because it's a worldwide um, jubilee rather than a, an Israel-specific um, jubilee. Jesus in his ministry is about to begin the reclamation of, of the whole world um, and the restoration of, of the world to, to rights rather than just the reordering uh, of Israel. Yeah. That's very good, very interesting. I was going to pick up on Alistair's comment about uh, the placement of the genealogy in relation to the baptism, uh, and the, particularly the the, uh, the observation that this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, which is what Luke 3.23 tells us explicitly. He began his ministry at 30 years of age. That's immediately after this brief account of the baptism, which suggests he's roughly 30 when he's baptized. That's the way that it's historically been taken. And then you get a genealogy that's connected with that with that uh, installation into ministry, and I th- I think there are reasons to see this as having at least uh, there are other dimensions to it, but having at least priestly overtones. The priests entered into their ministry at the age of thirty, which is when Jesus is beginning his ministry. The genealogical tables for the priests are extremely important, of course. When we looked at the Pentateuchal um, genealogies, we saw that they came to a climax in Exodus six with the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And then, of course, um, throughout the Old Testament, establishing the genealogy, your genealogy was essential to be to being installed as a priest. You'd have to establish 
genealogical connection to Aaron and then later on to Zadok. Um, so, and, and the, I, I think there are other reasons to think this is a, this is an entry into Jesus priestly ministry at the age of 30. And then he's given this genealogy that doesn't, doesn't go back to, he's, he's not a, he's not a priest in the order of, uh, in the order of Aaron. He's a priest of a different order, but uh, ultimately he's a priest. Uh, he's an, an Adamic priest who can trace his genealogy to the original uh, priest in the garden, as verse 38 tells us. Hey, Peter, um, uh, that's pretty obviously true about priests and Levites beginning their public ministry at 30. But we've had this emphasis in Luke on David and Jesus being son of David, his father. David began his reign uh, at the age of 30. Um, and then, and in addition to that, so there's a, a royal kingly dimension to this. Um, be, uh, given what James just said, which is true about Luke having a this worldwide uh, kind of appeal, kind of significance to Jesus' ministry, Joseph also was 30 years old when he began his service to Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. In uh, we told that in Genesis 41. So there. There might also there might be a priestly, kingly, and prophetic dimension mm-hmm. to this uh, uh, number here. Thirty mm-hmm. to fill out that prophetic dimension, we could maybe look at the very beginning of the book of Ezekiel, where it's in the thirtieth year that the heavens are opened, and Ezekiel sees visions of God by the um, Chibok Canal, and that throne vision at the very beginning might remind us of Jesus's vision of um, the heavens opened and the dove descending upon him at the river Jordan. And then the description of his going into the wilderness for his temptation is similar to the descriptions of Ezekiel being brought on the prophetic journeys to the Valley of Dry Bones, to the mountain, and then to the various extremities of the temple. And it's in the same order. The hand of the Lord was upon me and I was led in the spirit too. Whereas for Luke's account, it's um, Jesus being filled with the Spirit, was led in the Spirit. It's the same sort of language. And so maybe we're supposed to see a connection with Ezekiel here as well in those 30 years. Um, Ezekiel is the son of man figure. Um, but then that emphasis upon Jesus as the son of God occurs on both sides and mm-hmm. in the genealogy in the center. So there's the voice from heaven declaring him to be the beloved son. Then there's the testing in the wilderness if you are the son of god and then the genealogy that punctuates the space between them which is tracing back through adam to god but that's as was supposed there's a way in which you can trace christ's identity as the son of god that way but the readers of luke know better that jesus can trace his identity as the son of god in a far more direct way mm-hmm. Right, because it's in Luke that we have uh, the the uh, Annunciation scene where uh, Mary is told that the Spirit is going to overshadow her. The one born in here shall be called the Son of God. Luke also records the incident in the temple when Jesus was 12, where Jesus himself speaks of the God of the temple as his father. So that that sonship, um, a Son of God theme is already uh, is already at work in the infancy narratives and then it's carry, carrying forward. And that might explain the way in which the genealogy is pretty much bookended by the presence of the Holy Spirit. There is the descent of the Holy Spirit in verse 22, and then immediately at the start of um, chapter 4, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus goes forth. Right, and you have a, have a neat little chiasm that uh, fits in with that. You've got spirit and spirit on either end, 
uh, beloved son in 322, son of God in 320, 338, and then the genealogy is uh, is uh, set within that as uh, between the work of the, the appearance of the Spirit and the declaration of Jesus as son. I think that uh, just, uh, just to highlight the point that uh, we've made in a couple of different ways, that as Jeff was saying, there's overlapping um, royal and priestly and uh, and prophetic uh, dimensions to the to the baptism and to the genealogy but that's all set within the larger context of Jesus as the last Adam uh, and therefore as son of God so uh, these it's an it's an uh, an Adamic priest king prophet kind of scenario that were that were that Luke is emphasizing should maybe think in both of the these genealogies it's stressing the importance of Joseph. We talk a lot about the place of Mary in um, the nativity stories and the importance of her faith and response, but maybe not enough about Joseph and the fact that Joseph's genealogy, the history that he represents, the line that he comes from, is an important part of Jesus' identity. It's not just that he takes on human flesh or that he is the son of Mary. He is the son of Joseph in this very particular way. He takes on the history that Joseph brings and bears that burden in his ministry. And this burden of that history is placed upon him at this point, I think, to highlight in part the universal character of his ministry. It goes all the way back to Adam. It's not just back to David or Abraham. And I suspect that that maybe should encourage us to focus more upon why Joseph was chosen, um, in part, to be the father of Christ. That interest in Joseph is uh, appears again at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at least the first uh, big account we have of him being rejected at Nazareth after he stands up in the synagogue and reads the scroll from Isaiah 61. Um, and they said to him, is not this Joseph's son? Uh, and then Jesus, of course, gives that famous quote, physician, heal yourself. Uh, but what, I mean, the question is, why is, is, uh, why do they say he's Joseph's son? Um, there seems to be some significance to that in Luke that we haven't really heard in the other gospel stories. What did you have in mind? Sorry, Jeff. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just making, <laughs> ah. I'm just seeing the connection with what Alistair just, just said, uh, that the people in his hometown, uh, their first response was, this is Joseph's son. Uh, Jim Jordan has taken that not as a reference to, or it, maybe as a double reference, not only as a reference to uh, Jesus' adopted fa- adoptive father, but also as a reference to the Joseph of Genesis. So it suggested might, um, might have overtones of a kind of messianic title. This is a, this is a greater Joseph, a better Joseph, the one who's, you know, who's going to accomplish what Joseph accomplished in Egypt. I wonder if it could tie back to the idea I was, I was talking about earlier about the apparent obscurity of Jesus's origins in terms of Joseph doesn't appear to have been um, uh, widely acknowledged as a, a candidate for messiahship or, or a member of David's line, quite possibly because he's taken up residence in Nazareth um, instead of in Bethlehem. And um, that same sort of that tension that that you get about the messianic origins and exactly what to expect 
in in the gospels has old testament roots so we get this sense that jesus is in isaiah uh, 11 for instance or the, the messiah in uh, isaiah 11 is going to be this root of jesse who will rule over the nations and and under a banner and and it being very obvious and then at the same time later in isaiah we have um again the messiah described as a root but which springs up from dry ground and with no majesty or, or stately form or anything of that nature so that tension seems to have an, a, an old testament kernel to it right so almost a um a hint of uh, a hint of a resurrection origin that he's he's coming up from a, an unlikely or a dead source a root from dry ground where which is not doesn't appear to be capable of productivity but becomes fruitful yes i mean luke's genealogy is the the dry ground if if you like it, it's um uh it, it doesn't go via the whole list of kings back to david it, it takes a a lesser known path the prominence of Joseph is an interesting detail here. There are three Josephs within Jesus' line in um, Luke's account. And there are also other interesting features, like a string of names that are familiar to us. Joseph, Judah, Simeon, and Levi, all in succession. Um, and other details that maybe invite us to reflect upon certain connections with the old testament background in matthew matthew definitely uses the connection with the old testament joseph at the very beginning you have the fact that it's jacob the father of joseph who's the father of jesus and then joseph immediately goes on to play the role of the old testament joseph having dreams and leading his people into egypt and then at the very end of the gospel of matthew jesus is the one that the 11 bow down to his 11 brothers um whereas here in luke i wonder whether there are different aspects of that background that are being brought out um is there something about that joseph typology that um we're supposed to be clued in on. Um, we've already mentioned that Joseph starts to serve in the court of Pharaoh at the age of 30. But I'm wondering whether there's anything else there. You're saying something, uh, some feature of the story of Joseph that Luke is highlighting, in, it would be different from what Matthew's highlighting. Yes, perhaps. Yeah, interesting. Um, maybe we can leave that to our uh, listeners to uh, puzzle out see if they have any suggestions about uh, a uh, Joseph typology uh, running through Luke. Tracing the genealogy of Christ back to Adam connects him with the very beginning of the story of Scripture. Christ's destiny is to fulfill not just the story of Israel, as we see in Matthew's Gospel, but the entire story of humanity. And the fact that Adam, the son of God, is mentioned at the very end of the genealogy in a way that introduces the story of the temptation maybe helps us to see a further connection behind that story, that Jesus is the one who he endures temptation and testing in the wilderness, whereas Adam failed in the garden. And so Christ is the one who reverses the problem not just of the sin of Israel, but the sin of humanity in general and the fall. He is the one that's going to bring us back ultimately to um, paradise, to the place of God's dwelling among mankind. 
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.